Well, good morning. I trust that you all know what that is. It's a piece of a puzzle, sort of. But if that's all you have, that's all you know. And you really don't have any idea what that piece of the puzzle is until you can place it in its proper context. That's why they put the picture on the lid. So you can figure out how it all fits together. Um, But actually, this piece of puzzle is one better. This puzzle piece is to what's known as a Glyphshaw puzzle. What that means is if you have the appropriate software, you can hold this up in front of that little webcam and that computer will tell you where that piece goes. It's like the, great, the greatest of all puzzle cheats. It just tells you where to put the thing. Now, I show you this this morning because I think a lot of us have bits and pieces of the puzzle we call the Bible. You know, we heard the story about Samson and creation, and then there's Paul and the guys and, and Isaiah, and we got pieces all around. Um, but we really don't have a sense for how they fit together because we can't see the big picture. Um, and so we need something like a, a Glyphshaw puzzle that'll show us the puzzle and where to put the piece, where it fits, where it belongs, so that it'll make sense to us. And that's why uh, for about the next six months, we're doing... Just a a broad study of the great themes of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, book by book, going through there so that we have the picture, so that we can see where all those pieces of information, that verse you read yesterday in your devotions and that story you taught the three-year-olds last week, where they fit in the great redemptive plan of God as that story unfolds in this amazing book called the Bible. Now, we've been describing the Bible this way. We've said it's like a drama that unfolds in six great acts. Act one is creation. Act two, sin comes into the world. And then act three, God chooses a people for himself, Israel. And then act four, the beginning of the New Testament, Jesus comes onto the scene. And then the church in the book of Acts and throughout the epistles and then in Revelation, the end. And that's just a real quick way to think about how the drama unfolds. Last week we saw in Genesis God created the world and it was good and then sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve's choice and it spoiled everything, twisted everything around to where nothing worked the way it was supposed to. Estranged man from wife, brother from brother, and man from God, most importantly. And we saw God choose Abraham and call him and promise him a land, that he would be a great people who would be a blessing to all nations. Um, This morning, we're going to pick up where the book of Genesis leaves off. If you want to open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus, this morning, we're going to try to work our way through the whole book of Exodus, which is part of that third great act concerning God's people, Israel. And I'll pray for us as we get ready to start that, okay? Lord, we need mercy now. To see you, just the wonder of who you are, to see the beauty of your plan for us and for our world, and see where we fit in that. So God, teach us today, but speak to us too about the order of our lives, that we might have a sense from you about where, where we need to turn to the right or to the left to walk more in the joy 
of a life of faith and obedience to you. So come, God, now and use your word for its great purposes in our lives, we pray. Amen. As you know, not long ago, I was in India, and one of the great privileges I had while I was in India was to um, teach and worship in some house fellowships. One of those that we visited and simply got to watch the worship unfold was this little room right here, uh, built off to the side of one of the houses, uh, a small band of believers that gathers in a town that's predominantly Hindu, and then Muslim, and lastly, a small band of Christians in this town. And this is one of those small bands. They're gathering to worship. And one of the fellows I want, want you to meet is this guy right here with his hands raised up, Mr. Anderson. Uh, not that Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson from India. And he, uh, he is a, um, he's an evangelist. God has given him the gift and the calling to speak to other people about Christ. And Mr. Anderson is not afraid and he's not subtle. He He speaks often to Hindus and Muslims about Jesus, and he goes so far as to mail all the governors of the Hindu states of India a New Testament and urge them to read it. As a result of that, he has been beaten and jailed and suffered um, oppression in his work and things like that. I tell you his story this morning and want to tag on this question is, what, what happens when what happens to Mr. Anderson happens here? What happens when it happens to you? How do you deal with unjust hardship and suffering simply because you're following the ways of Christ? Um, there are Voices, prophetic voices like Joseph Tsan, who's a pastor and Christian leader in Romania, who are watching our culture, and they believe that it's not just that persecution is coming, they believe that in some of its incipient forms it's already started. Joseph Tsan um, looks at our culture from his vantage point in Romania, and he traces our court decisions that have removed Christianity from the public square in many cases, and he notices the overt Uh, media hostility to things Christian. And he says things like this. He says, when Southern Baptists decided to continue to evangelize the Jews and the Hindus, he says, in America, that was called a hate crime. He says, don't you see you have all the elements of a climate of persecution of the Christians in America? And like every other such event, he says, it has the gift of snowballing. So what will you do when you suffer hardship for following Christ? And as he says, in some ways it's already here. In some ways students are mocked and employees are overlooked and neighbors are snubbed and generous people are taken advantage of all because they follow Christ. And as we send families, continue to send families around the world to serve in places that are openly hostile to the message of Jesus, we as a family will suffer. Um, And this has been the case ever since there has been a people of God. It's like as soon as God's people were born, (laughs) they suffered. And when you open up the book of Exodus, that's right where you find God's people. They're living in the nation of Egypt where God sent them 
and they are about to suffer, really for no fault of their own. In Exodus chapter 1, Joseph, you remember him from the back end of the book of Genesis, and all his brothers and all that generation associated with Joseph died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so the land was filled with them. And then a new king, a new pharaoh, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and most importantly, in his mind, leave our country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them. And with forced labor, and the Israelites built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. So now God's people in the place where he sent them are suffering horribly and for no, no cause of their own. This is, there's no indication that this is a judgment on their sin as future captivities would be. This is just born out of the greedy fears of Pharaoh. And their suffering, turns out, it goes from bad to worse. In verse 22, Pharaoh gives this order to all of his people. Every boy that is born, every Israelite boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile River. But let every girl live. And so in this captivity, in a foreign land as oppressed people, in the midst of infanticide, um, the very reputation of God is at stake. Is he going to keep his promises to be good to his people, to bring them into a good land? Or isn't he? Um, can he do that? Will he? Or are the Egyptians, Egyptian gods greater than the God of the Hebrews? Well, amidst the slaughter of these infants, there are a pair of midwives who choose to honor God. And they begin to save these little baby boys' lives. And one of those baby boys is a boy who would come to be known as Moses. Not only is Moses, as a little baby, his life spared, but it's spared by the daughter of Pharaoh herself. And she raises him as her own in the royal family of the great king of Egypt. Moses grows up. Because, you see, our sovereign God has heard the cries of his suffering people. In chapter 2, it says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And as a result of that, God is raising up a deliverer. A man through whom God will bring about his great deliverance of his people. And God is positioning Moses, albeit very reluctantly, to be that man. The human agent through whom God would work his great deliverance. God has heard his people's cries. He's seen their suffering and he remembers his covenant and so he's about to deliver them and he's getting Moses ready for that task. So he is trained by Pharaoh in the ways of Egypt. But he gets in trouble as he, as he kills a man. Um, 
And he flees to Midian where he, he herds sheep for 40 years. And so God then, by a burning bush, calls an 80-year-old fugitive turned shepherd with a stick to deliver his people. But God has been readying Moses. Everything that Israel is about to go through, Moses has already gone through, it turns out. His knowledge of Egyptian language and culture will serve him well when he stands before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and speaks to him. His knowledge of the hills of Midian and Mount Sinai will serve him well when he leads God's people back to this very region to worship God after their escape. And he knows how to herd sheep, which is going to come in real handy uh, for Moses. God wastes nothing. Nothing in Moses' life is a waste. God's sovereignly readying him, working redemptively in every piece. And that's true for you and me too. God wastes nothing in his people's lives. Romans 8 is the way we say it. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his wonderful purposes. So God does now appear to Moses in that burning bush and he commissions him to speak to Pharaoh in God's name, the name Yahweh, which is now revealed to God's people for the very first time. In chapter 6, God says to Moses, I am the Lord. And whenever you see in your Bibles, the capital letters L-O-R-D, those represent the name, the personal name of God, best rendered, as far as we can tell, Yahweh. He says, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I'll bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. God promises that he will redeem, he will rescue his people from this slavery and take them to the land where he has promised them. And there are two great compelling reasons that seem to be pressing on God such that he acts this way. And they're in verse 5 of that same section. He says, first, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving. He has heard his people's suffering. And it moves him to act. See, God hears you when you cry out to him in your suffering. He hears. He cares more deeply than you can imagine. When God shows himself later in the book of Exodus in an amazing scene to Moses up on Mount Sinai, 
He speaks about the very heart and essence of who he is as God, as Yahweh. And this is some of the language he uses. He passed in front of Moses and he proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Over and over and over, as you read the Old Testament, this language is used to describe God. He is compassionate, he is gracious, he is slow to anger, he is abounding in love. When you suffer, this is the God who hears and cares deeply when you cry out to him. Every time he hears. And every time he cares. And that is why God acts on behalf of his people in this situation. That and the fact that it says he is faithful. He's abounding in faithfulness. Back in verse 5, it says, I have remembered my covenant. What what God has promised, he's going to do. So what's he promised you as someone who professes to follow after God? To redeem everything for good? To not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear? To forgive all your sins? To heal all your diseases? To dry every tear? We could go on and on and on the rest of our time here with these amazing promises that God has said He will do on behalf of His people. And as a result of that, it is good and right and wise and noble and beautiful when you wait patiently for God to be faithful to his promises. It is what it means to be God's people in times of suffering. So what follows now from this section about chapter 6 all the way through chapter 15 is this amazing unveiling of God's unquestionable superiority over all other gods. It is stunning. And really, you should read Exodus this week. I mean, I'm going to just show you the tip of the iceberg of the portrait that is God, the incomparable God in Exodus. It's Stunning. Um, And I figure in about 15 minutes a day, maybe less if you kind of skim those tabernacle sections back. Um, You could read the book of Exodus this week. And you will see God like you'll never see him anywhere else. It's a stunning, stunning portrait of God. And in this section that I'm summarizing here, the Lord releases these ten great plagues. You've you've probably read about them. I know you've seen them in the movies. Um, Plague after plague after plague upon the Egyptians so that his own people will know him in their deliverance and that the Egyptians will know him in his judgments. It says, um, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. He wants his people to know him as their deliverer. And he wants the Egyptians to know him too. He says the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against them and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. But Pharaoh resists plague after plague after plague and it's nasty in Egypt. He resists until that great tenth plague is sent by God in chapter 11. Moses says, 
This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt and every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of a cattle as well. Yet God makes a special redemptive provision for his people, which he does through these later plagues. They affect Israel, but they don't, or they affect Egypt, but they don't affect God's people. And in chapter 12, we find that provision. The Lord says to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And they are to take some of the blood from that lamb and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. God is demonstrating unequivocally here his absolute incomparable superiority. He says, I am Yahweh. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is what we have come to know as the Passover where the wrath and judgment of God passes over his people, they are spared his wrath by the blood of a lamb on the doorpost. The judgment of God passes over them. They are saved by the blood of a Passover lamb. Now, if you've ever just flipped through the pages of the New Testament, that that sounds familiar. Because in the New Testament, you find this kind of language used of Jesus. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That just as there needed to be a sacrifice to spare the people in the first Passover, Christ now on the cross has become the Passover lamb. John the Baptist saw it. He said he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what's amazing. About 1,500 years almost before the birth of Christ, the Exodus happened. The book of Exodus was written for us and it points us 1,500 years ahead of time so stunningly towards Christ. It is absolutely amazing. Christ is our Passover lamb. He is the way that we are spared the dreadful consequences of our sin. And so just as Israel trusted in the blood of their Passover lamb, we are to trust in the blood of ours, Jesus the Christ. Because our peril is just as great as that of the Egyptians, if not greater. We will have to die to pay for our sins unless the lamb covers us. Romans chapter 6 puts it this way, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, at this point, as you can imagine, after losing his own son and every firstborn in the nation of Egypt, Pharaoh relents and he lets God's people go 
And they leave led by God himself. It says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And it's a beautiful image that will come up again of God leading and his people following in faith and obedience. But God leads them And he leads them, quite puzzlingly, right to the edge of the sea. He leads them to a place where they are trapped and pursued by Pharaoh. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified and they cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, was it um, because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answers his people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And I'm sure there's a good paraphrase out there somewhere that says, you need only to shut up. Okay? Just shut up and watch what God does. Okay. And God does this amazing thing. He parts the waters of the sea and all Israel, a couple million people go through. And then, because he wants to be known for not only his deliverance, but by his judgments, those same waters come back and the entire armies of Egypt perish in those waters. Um, And the people then burst out in what is one of the first great songs of praise and worship in the Bible in Exodus chapter 15, Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord and we still sing some of these same words today. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Who among the gods is like you, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. And that is exactly what follows next. In chapters 16 through 18, this pillar of fire and this pillar of smoke guide God's people on their journey um, to Mount Sinai. But about three days into this journey, there's a couple million people in the desert. They're running a little short on water. So you can imagine what they do. They grumble against Moses saying, um, so what are we supposed to drink? A couple million people out here in the desert, Moses. And so God miraculously provides water in the desert for a couple million people. This is not like Moses and his kids and God gives him a canteen. He provides water for a couple million people. But barely a month out, they're still grumbling. 
in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So God, in his graciousness, provides his grumbling people with manna and meat on a daily basis. Um, Every day, they're provided just what they need, but they disobey because they won't trust God, and they gather on, on the Sabbath when they're not supposed to, and of course, it rots. They gather more than they're supposed to, and it rots. And Basically, anything you do outside the will of God, that's what happens. It just rots. And they are experiencing that at this point in time to the point where as God provides miraculously food and water for a couple million people in the desert, this is what they're saying. Is the Lord among us or not? Food and water for a couple million people miraculously provided every day in the desert. And they're saying, well, we're not really sure if God's with us in this whole journey thing. Grumbling is an indicator of unbelief and a thankless heart. And it is a thing that we must not follow the ancient Israelites in their practice, though we are want to do that. The other day, I'm having breakfast with a friend. I pull up. That day, I'm, I've been tasked to drive what's affectionately known as the Big Blue Bus. This is a larger-than-life van. That is the only thing we could find that would fit my larger-than-life family, both in number and size, in and, uh, but every time you pull up to the gas pump, you know, 100 bucks, just throw it down to fill this thing up. And he said, don't you just hate pulling up to the gas pump in that thing? I said, oh, I hate this. I can't wait to get rid of it. And I walked out of that restaurant later, and I thought, what have I said? that I would say I hate the provision that God has given to me, that I want something better. See, grumbling is an indicator of unbelief and a thankless heart. And it may be that God has been speaking to you, or perhaps he is right now, about your thankless, unbelieving heart that grumbles about the amazing life that God has given to you with all its accoutrements, all the good stuff. Well, God is gracious to his people. And there's a group of folk who attack them called the Amalekites, and they're in a battle. And um, they win the battle. They prevail as long as Moses holds his hands up with that staff in it and the Israelites are winning. Whenever he lowers his hands, the Amalekites are winning. And it's a great symbol of dependence on God's power. For us, it's a symbol of prayer where God pours out his power when his people pray. We see that the kingdom of God here advances by the power of God and that alone. 
And by chapter 19, they arrive at Mount Sinai and Moses ascends that mountain, that holy, sacred mountain, to meet with God. And there God makes a covenant with his people. In chapter 19, verse 4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully, keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, you are to speak to the Israelites. And on that same mountain, then, God gives his law to them to show them how they are to live in relationship with a holy God. Chapter 20 contains those Ten Commandments that we're so familiar with. And I ran across a great insight on the Ten Commandments that I just wanted to share with you as we think about all these laws that God gives his people. What's with all the laws? Um, This is from the drama of the Bible, and it says, the Ten Commandments are good news. They're good news. They tell Israel how to live so as to please God and display to the nations God's creational purposes for humanity. Because the Lord is the creator, his instructions fit with the way he's made the world. And they go on to talk about why there's a day of rest. Because God made the world that way. He says, the commandments are thus the keys to living fully human lives. They are certainly not intended as horrible constraints to make life difficult. It's good. It's good news. It's good for us. And so God gives his law, and then following this in a really long section as you read Exodus this week, chapters 24 to 31, is the blueprint that God gives Moses for the tabernacle. Okay. The tabernacle is a portable tent where God would dwell with and lead his people, and it is given in great detail. Okay. Laborious detail. As you read it, you'll find out. Here's an example in chapter 25. Make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer it out, base and shaft. Its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms shall be of one piece with it. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand. Three on one side, three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers, buds, and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand there are to be four cups shaped with almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. You get a sense for the detail. There's seven chapters of this level of detail. It says, see that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Um, So, why all the detail? Well, uh, Graham Goldsworthy in his book, According to Plan, had a very helpful statement for me. He, He says, no detail in the construction of the tent, the tabernacle, and its contents is left to the imagination of the people, for they are completely dependent upon the revelation of God for knowledge of their relationship to Him. They have no idea how a sinful people relates to a radically holy God without getting killed. And so... They need help with every little almond bud on every little lampstand. They don't know how to make a lampstand that God wants. They don't know how to make anything that pleases God at this point in their life. 
And so the tabernacle shows his people in detail how to approach a holy God. And there's some things we can learn from it. One is, you approach a holy God the way he wants you to. Okay? Very, very carefully. Again, listen to uh, Goldsworthy as he writes about this. He says, everything about this structure of the tabernacle speaks of three great truths. Keep these in mind as you're reading all those details. God, first, God wills to dwell among his people and to meet with them. The tabernacle exists because God wants to be with his people. Secondly, sin separates people from God. There are places if you sashayed into that part of the tabernacle, you were toast. And the third thing is that God provides a way of reconciliation through sacrifice and the mediatorial office of the priest. So the tabernacle shows us God wants to be with us, but we can't be with him because of our sin. So God has made a way for us to relate to him through the priest and the sacrifice. Now, in... The chapters that follow this section, chapters 32 through 34, while Moses is up on the mountain getting these directives from God, the people are down in the valley heinously violating them. Chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, he was up there like 40 days or something, and they thought, what happened to Moses? They gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron, and he took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And it's hard to imagine a more offensive act that the people could have done before God at that point in time. A God of their own making. And as a result, this act has severe consequences as 3,000 people die in judgment by the swords of the Levites on that day. Um, and it's just fascinating. You have this real elaborate description of this tabernacle, right? Where it's evident that God wants to be worshipped in a certain fashion. And then you've got people down in the valley freelancing it, doing it how they want to do it, and paying with their lives. This is a severe warning in our culture to a group of people who worship God. I call them do-it-yourselfers. We don't like what the Bible says about God, maybe about hell or about you know, sin. or We don't like that stuff. We don't like what it says about suffering. So you know what? We're not going to believe that part. We're going to believe this instead. That thinking is rampant in our day. It creeps into the church where we just pick and choose about what we want to believe God is like. And we end up fashioning a God with our own hands. And I can't think of a more precarious place to be. I guarantee you, God will not be happy with your worship and you may experience his judgment for it. 
To be a do-it-yourselfer is absolutely dangerous, life-threatening. And we see that played out here shockingly. But Moses, after he's done grinding up the calf and pouring it in the water and making him drink it, he was slightly aggravated. He goes back up the mountain to intercede for them before this holy God so they won't get completely wiped off the face of the earth. And on that mountain, God reveals himself to Moses in an amazing way. He uses some of those same words that we cited earlier. God says, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, the God who is slow to anger, compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's where that description comes from, that encounter up on that mountain. But what's even more stunning to me than that God shows himself to Moses in that way is what God does for his people. He gives them a do-over. He gives this wayward people making idols and worshiping them and giving them credit for their deliverance. He gives them grace. And he gives them another set of tablets, another set of the Ten Commandments, and he renews his covenant. In chapter 34, just after this whole calf incident, the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. So God is taking this grumbly, wayward people, and in his grace, he's making them a display people for all the nations to see. He says, I will drive, he says, obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So after all their grumbling unbelief and blatant idolatry, God gives grace. And this morning, I just want you to know that's our God too. No matter where you've wandered off to, no matter what you've fashioned with your hands that's captured your heart, there's a God willing to give grace to you. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing grace. And we need it desperately, just like they did back then. But I love the people's response to God's grace. See, way back in chapter 24, they made a promise. Moses reads to them the book of the covenant, and they respond, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And, of course, then they go do the whole calf thing. Um, But now, they really do what they say they'll do. In the rest of the book is largely a replay of this whole tabernacle thing. And as you, if you read it quickly, you're going to think, wait, we're just a do-over with the tabernacle thing. Exactly. Except now, um, they're making it. Just as God commanded. Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and was willing to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring freewill offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled craftsmen who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left their work and said to Moses, 
the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people had to be restrained from bringing more because what they had already had was more than enough to do all the work. They are so amazed at the gracious do-over that God has given to them that they are bringing more than enough for the tabernacle. The guys, they have to issue an order to stop it. Stop bringing offerings. So overwhelmed are God's people by the grace that he has extended to them. And it's, and it's an obedience that marks every jot and tittle of their lives in building this thing. You remember that, that description in chapter 25 of what they're supposed to build? that lampstand. Well, in chapter 37, it says they made that lampstand. They made it of pure gold, hammered it out, basin shaft, its flower-like cups, buds and blossoms were one piece with it. Six branches extended from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side, three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms were on the branch, three on the next branch, and on and on and on about the lampstand. And there are like four or five chapters just saying, we obeyed God in the smallest detail. It's a response, I think, to the fact that they now feared God. And they loved him because of the grace that he extended to them. And Exodus ends with this beautiful portrait of an obedient people carefully following um, day by day the leadership of their incomparable redeemer and king. The cloud covered over the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle and Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of Yahweh was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. And an obedient people follow a gracious God day in, day out, day and night. They follow in obedience to their God. So Exodus shows us some really amazing stuff. It shows us God as the incomparable, supreme redeemer of his suffering, grumbly people. It shows us a stunning portrait of God. You really ought to read it. It's amazing. And it points us to Christ. 1,500 years before Christ came to earth, it shows us him. It points to him through Moses, who ascends the mountain as intercessor for his people. Through the Passover lamb, who shed blood, spares the people from the wrath of God. Through the tabernacle that shows us we need a priest and we need a sacrifice if we're going to relate to a holy God. And Exodus calls us to trust and obey. God is calling out a people to live holy lives that mirror God to all the other peoples. And see, now, now, in this day, we are that tabernacle. We're the temple of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians in the New Testament says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. So if you want to know what God looks like today, you just look around this room. We are the temple of God. And we mirror him to the world. 
when we obey him and walk in glad, faithful obedience, even in hardship. So today, I'm going to ask the worship team to come and lead us in a closing response of worship. But really, the response, I think, is just to say, how am I responding to God's grace? No matter how hard things are right now, am I trusting God? Am I obeying God like I'm supposed to, like would please Him in all the little details of what He's asked me to do? Well, if God is speaking to you today, as always, a great first step to your obedience to him is simply to come forward for prayer and kind of consecrate your life. Set it aside once again for God in the areas where he's speaking to you. And you're welcome to come by yourself and do that or drag a friend with you or our leaders always come to the front and they're waiting to pray with you. But now is a great time by the words of the song and by our actions in prayer that we can offer our lives. As, as Israel said, we will obey.